Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. And today we are doing our first of several episodes doing a deep dive into Final Fantasy VIII, a long-form analysis of Final Fantasy VIII. That is the game that was chosen by you. Uh, you guys voted on it on the last podcast. And there's a lot to get into, so we don't want to waste yeah. any time. Um, a little bit of an introduction. First of all, for anybody uh, who, who's watching, um, there are always time codes in the description if you want to skip ahead to certain sections. I'm also going to try doing that like uh, timeline segmented thing on the actual YouTube timeline so that you can kind of know where the sections are at and skip ahead to them. Um, so if you want to do that, feel free to do that, but it, we need to do a little bit of an introduction to the purpose and the form and the structure of how we're going to be going about doing this and which section of the game we're going to be talking about today. So, um, I recently took a literary analysis course and it was awesome. We read lots of really great stuff, but there was a certain approach, a way that the instructor had to... Um, like, like basically steps into how to analyze um, literature that I thought could apply really well to an analysis of video games as well. Um, and so that's the structure we're going to follow on each episode. So essentially there are five parts to it. Uh, step one is to look into the creators themselves or the author of, of, a, of a work or in this case the development team and try to understand their inspirations, where they were coming from, why they were writing it, um, and, and get a little more background or, or information about, you know, kind of like what their goals were when they were uh, creating this, what they were looking to achieve. And then, you know, kind of like an, analyzing, did they, did, did they reach that goal? Did they achieve that? Uh, were they successful in that attempt? So that's where you start. Uh, part two is to eventually, essentially just summarize what happened in the section that we're looking at. So in today's episode, for those of you who were playing along with us or are going to be playing along with us as we do this, we basically played from the intro of the game all the way through the Dalit mission, which is the seed final exam. And then we stopped before going back to Balam Garden for the graduation ceremony. So yeah. uh, I basically saved the game right there in Balam, just outside of Balam Village after coming back on the barge from the, the, from the Dalit mission. Yeah, me too. So that's where we stopped for today. So we'll kind of summarize you know, what happened in there. Uh, then uh, you look into what is the style, the style of the author or the style here of, of the game developers. And we'll be looking at style with, you know, visual style, storytelling style, writing style, all that kind of thing that, yeah. that goes into what we looked at uh, just for this episode. Then we'll look at characters. Were the characters convincing? Uh, is is mostly what we will be, what we will be looking at. Sorry, I'm stumbling a little bit. And then the final part uh, is to look for human content or theme, message. Uh, what can we take from this? Apply, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and th this is kind of what separates just you know a story done for uh, for entertainment from something that is a work of art. So that's kind of what we'll be looking at. Now, each of these sections will vary in length depending on what we're talking about. So in this episode, there's gonna, it's going to be really heavy on the dev history section, on the creator section, step one. Um, in the future, I, I assume that that will 
probably not take as long to get through <laughs> because, uh, uh, I mean, it, it might come up if there's a scene in particular where there's a good interview uh, where, you know, Kitase or somebody is talking about, you know, why they made that choice for that scene or something like that. Um, I'm sure, like, when we get to the squall is... Well, okay, I'm going to hold off on that. And, th- and this is this is <laughs> I another... I exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> I think a lot of people probably did. But there's, there's one thing I want to say before we get started on this, too, is that this will be a spoiler-free analysis as far as like only talking about the section we actually played for that episode. We will not be referencing things that haven't happened yet in the playthrough. Right. So we'll, we'll kind of take it step by step and uh, not talk about things that are coming. That being said, what I do expect is that people watching have played the game before. And that, that can mean either, you've played it multiple times in the past like we have, or at least that you have played the section we are talking about. So it it will be spoiler-free for future content that we haven't covered yet. It will not be spoiler-free for the section we're talking about, obviously. <laughs> um, right. We just so, can't do that. That would, be, that would be just impossible. We'd be walking on glass the whole time. Yes. So uh, just so you know, um, if you want to watch and you haven't played the game before, you at least need to play the section that we're talking about in that particular mm-hmm. episode. Originally, I was thinking about turning this into 12 episodes. Then I realized we're doing this once a month. That's going to take an entire year, and that's way too long. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah, that's so not... I'm thinking it didn't take instead... that long to play through Dalit, so... Yeah, I'm thinking instead, this episode, I think, needed to be a shorter amount of, like, actual game covered because there's so much dev history to cover good but in the future i think we're going to play through quite a bit more i'm going to try to turn this into a six episode series instead of a 12 episode series and cover basically twice as much game per episode so uh that's going to be the goal um okay i think that that mostly covers everything um why don't why don't we actually start before we dive into everything and talk a little bit about our own history with Final Fantasy VIII and our feelings about the game. I think that that's really important as a starting point so that people can know, we can kind of be transparent about what we feel about the game. Why don't you go first? Yeah, so mine will be shorter than yours, I think. I, I didn't play Final Fantasy VIII until, was it maybe two years ago? Um, and I just kind of had an inkling. I just kind of wanted to see what it was all about. And honestly, well... I know this isn't a, a total review, but my my understanding of the game initially was that it's of the PlayStation three Final Fantasy games that were released, not including Tactics. Sorry, Mike, but of the mainline <laughs> ones, eight kind of gets the the least amount of um, appreciation. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, the fans really loved nine. Everyone loved seven, except for you know some people who maybe played it a little bit later. I don't know. Everyone's got their own opinions, but eight kind of seems to be left behind a little bit and people seem to not have appreciated it as much. And um, I think that's makes it a perfect candidate for this analysis actually. Uh, But I, it always made me curious as to why, you know, why everyone thought that way. I played the game just two years ago and I, I really liked it. There are some, you know, there are some things that we didn't love. Um, that I didn't love, but um, you know, I ended up playing the game twice. Actually, I don't know if I told you that I played it once, mm. and then, well, okay, I played it once, 
And then we watched a long play. Me and my wife watched the long play of it together because she just wanted the story. And I was like, all right, let's just watch it. But seeing it the second time was was really fun. Um, and then playing it this this time now where I understand the junctioning and the GFs and everything, uh, it's actually been really fun playing it a second time. I can analyze and appreciate it a lot better um, knowing this stuff because I was really intimidated by the system at first. Uh, it's, there's a lot that they're going through in the tutorial stage of the game with, um, all the GFs and junctioning and leveling up your GFs in a specific ability and things like that. You know, it was really confusing for me at first, but now that I have a good handle on it, um, you know, I've been able to just kind of, you know, appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get into that, into the, I have a whole bunch of notes on the, the tutorial that they, <laughs> that they have there, um, for, for junctioning GF specifically. But um, I, I agree. You play My first time playing the game was, oh, I want to say maybe like 2008. It was mm-hmm. right after I got back from Vegas, and um, I, I wanted to play all the Final Fantasy games. And I had already played, you know, one, four, six, and seven. So I was kind of playing through the others that hadn't played. So I played, you know, mm-hmm. two and three and five and then eight. Um, and then, and then I guess I, I don't think I had played nine all the way through before I went to Vegas. I think I played it all the way through for the first time afterwards. Anyways, but it, it is definitely, at least among fans, like with on people talking about it online, it was the first Final Fantasy game that I found to be truly divisive. Now that's, that's not to say that, um, it's like a 50-50 split. I think that the majority of people who have played Final Fantasy VIII really, really liked it. Um, right. But there's a much louder minority <laughs> um, who, who are big detractors of Final Fantasy VIII. And I think there are good reasons for that, and we're going to go over that a lot today. Sure. Um, but I think that one part of the reason why, and I, I, I guess I'll say, on my first playthrough, I was one of those people. I did not like Final Fantasy VIII the first time I played it. Yeah, really much at all. I was, I was, I was very, I was very disappointed with it. Um, and I, and and one point that I want to make is that having the right expectation going into the game can help you appreciate the game better. Right? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. And this is why it's very useful to do the behind the scenes research research of the game to understand why decisions were made or why this changed or why is this you know seem to be different from how final fantasy was done before there's a lot of that and we're going to get into that in a minute but the more that i've played it and and the more that i've understood some of those choices there's there's really a lot of good stuff to appreciate in ff8 and and ff8 is a game that I've grown to really like over time. There, there's really just a lot of good stuff here. And, and so I'm, I'm excited to get into it, even though it's not like per se my favorite Final Fantasy game um, or even one of my favorites. I, I still think it's a really good game and, and I do really appreciate a lot about it. So, so let's get into our step one here, our first part, which is to look into the, the development uh, history of the game. All right, everyone get some popcorn because this is going to be a little bit of a story here. (laughs) Interject with any questions that you might have along the way or anything that you're you're interested in adding to. All right, so as everybody 
probably knows who watches this channel. Or maybe if you're a new viewer who just discovered us recently and maybe you don't know a lot about the history of Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy was created by Hironobu Sakaguchi. He was um, a lead developer back in the 1980s uh, at, at Squaresoft when it was kind of just a, a startup game company. And uh, he worked with uh, a couple of key developers. I think there were seven total to create Final Fantasy. And that boosted the the company into superstardom. Um, and he led each Final Fantasy game as the director, that was his title, up through Final Fantasy V, right? Um, then on Final Fantasy VI, he was, his official title was producer. Final Fantasy VII, his official title was producer. Final Fantasy VIII, his title became executive producer. Executive, yeah. Now, there are some parallels here between Kaysen and I come from a filmmaking background. Yes, um, yeah. Do, do you want to talk about <laughs> the difference between the director, yeah. the producer, and the executive producer, what those mean? Yeah, so the director has the hands-on creative control over basically everything. Um, the producer has the producer is essentially the director's like boss in a lot of ways. I mean, it depends on how hands-on the producer wants to be. Um, but the producer has also a very hands-on approach to managing the teams, managing the budget, uh, managing how everything's, you know, going. The executive producer does very little <laughs> for the game. The executive producer is basically just the executive who's in charge of the company and just receives reports and meetings and stuff. The executive producing a game um, it typically means that um, you're just one of the higher ups in the company and you didn't actually do very much hands-on work on the actual game itself or the movie, whatever it is. Yeah. So a lot of times executive producer is just like a, it's like a formal title, like whoever the CEO of the company is, they're the executive producer or whoever, you know, the executive that headed up or, you know, budgeted the thing, they're just the producer and they don't actually do anything creatively. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the film classes I took, I, I really liked the way the professor put it. He said, usually the director is like the artistic boss of the yeah. project. The producer is the like business boss. Of, Financial, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of of the project. The executive producer is the guy who gives the okay for the money to be spent. <laughs> it's just like, here right, you go. So he has one job. He signs a piece of paper one time. <laughs> yeah. Here you go, producer, Unless who's going to do all the budget, work. Then, then yeah. there's a problem. Here, executive producer says, here you go, producer. You are approved to spend the money. The producer then puts the team together. The, the producer essentially creates the team who will make the game. Yeah. And the director then generally leads that team in the on the artistic decisions. Now, yeah. as Kaysen said, though, producers can and often do actually get more hands-on in the creative yeah, uh, process. Um, this, this actually is not very uncommon. And in Hironobu Sakaguchi's case, he was very much still in the trenches doing programming work, writing stories, and leading the team. Um, there was a comment on a, a, couple, a couple podcasts ago where somebody was trying to make the case that Sakaguchi's role on Final Fantasy has been greatly exaggerated post the NES title. So after Final Fantasy III, he actually wasn't that mm -hmm. involved. And this actually just is 
It's it's simply not true. Um, and I have some good quotes here that I want to read from uh, Kitase to talk about just how involved Sakaguchi was in in creating the stories and um, even in the like mechanics side, especially the mechanics side on Final Fantasy VII. This quote is coming from Kitase, and it's uh, it's from a Famitsu interview, and he's talking about Final Fantasy VII. Uh, he says, at the time, there were a lot of Western fantasy RPGs around, so we wanted to set it apart, and we wanted to achieve more realistic ways of showing the story. Also, Mr. Sakaguchi had suggested a modern drama-esque story with a strong sci-fi feel. Mr. Sakaguchi had been deeply involved with the story up to Final Fantasy VI, but with FF7, he focused his efforts on the battles. It was Mr. Sakaguchi who suggested the materia system. Okay, so uh, now this is a quote from Sakaguchi about Final Fantasy VII. He says, in terms of the premise, it was something that we had been holding on to for some time. I had imagined the world years before and its core themes about the way we treat the Earth and the idea that when we die, we turn its energy or we turn into energy and are assimilated into the Earth and reborn somewhere else. So while he wasn't as involved with like this the event scene creation right like writing the actual words on the paper and programming the right. scene itself as he had been on every final fantasy before he still suggested the setting he still suggested the theme of the game <laughs> the kind of like the core things it's talking about the way we treat the earth um you know the, yeah. these themes about life and death uh, there are other quotes that i've talked about in the past he was still very much involved in sort of like the core identity of what Final Fantasy VII was about. But he left the actual like writing scene direction, all of that to Kitase. So Kitase was the director uh, of that project, but, but, but Sakaguchi was still a very involved producer. And he, he was especially on Final Fantasy VII involved in the tech side of it. So getting Square up to up to speed on how to create games in 3D became like his primary job. It's like nobody mm. here knows anything about 3D. <laughs> yeah. About, about uh, this is the future of the freaking industry. We have no idea what we're doing. So he was very mm. much involved in going to tons of seminars. Um, in fact, when he met with Yuji Hori uh, and they came up with the idea to do Chrono Trigger, they were flying to like a, a workshop or a seminar in, in the United States to learn about 3d graphics like that's what they were doing is trying to figure out how are we going to freaking like make games in 3d and that's where they they met or where they met and they you know decided to make chrono trigger together so here's another quote from kitase about final fantasy 6 with ff6 my role was similar to what it had been with ff5 except that the volume of the game grew once again exponentially so the team of people working on the event scenes and scenario side grew to about four or five. And of course, Sakaguchi was the director and had primary control overseeing those aspects of the game as well. But he'd also become very busy at that time after becoming vice president of the company and had a lot of other projects going on. He couldn't put 100% into Final Fantasy VI, so I took charge of more of those event scenes. Um, there's another quote here. I'm going to skip through this a little bit so we can get through it faster. When it came to starting work on the sixth game, I wanted to approach the story with an ensemble cast, partly to do with something completely different, or to do something completely different for the audience. I first saw this kind of storytelling in Star of the Giants, which is a sport-themed comic book, and I wanted to try something similar with a fantasy story. 
with lots of different characters. So the idea of an ensemble cast which was Sakaguchi's. Um, mm. Then Kitase says here, uh, Sakaguchi was still involved in event creation, but his directorial responsibilities took up much more of his time. I think he's talking about more of the producer responsibilities, right? Um, and the fact that he's a vice president of the company now. He left know, a lot seriously. of the... He left most of the groundwork down to me and the rest of my team. Again, I was the scenario planning guy, which meant that I, uh, which meant it was my job to write and direct uh, cutscenes. And then he says he divided the responsibilities between us. This is Kitase talking. He placed me in charge of event production, carefully assessing those parts I directed. So Sakaguchi is still very much involved in the actual creation of the stories and in the in the creative. Mm process between uh, on final fantasy six final fantasy seven um final fantasy five as well as a great quote here i'm not going to read it because it's long where he talks about the first scene in final fantasy five the opening scene where you see um i think king tycoon comes out and he like gets on the dragon and flies away and lena is like talking to him you remember that scene case in the opening of final fantasy five you know Um, it's been a while i can't (laughs) although is that when the whole city gets bombed no, no, no. Um, so it, it essentially just starts off with uh, like it, it pans down on the castle, and you see the king walk out. His like his wyvern is like sitting there, and he's he like gets on the wyvern to like right off to the the wind shrine to like see why the wind has stopped blowing. Like the wind, something's happened to the wind crystal. Mm-hmm. And Lena comes running out and talking. She's worried. Anyways, that whole opening sequence, which is a pretty iconic mm-hmm. sequence, it's it's really well directed. Is that was all done by Sakaguchi. And, and Sakaguchi and Kitase had this sort of like friendly rivalry between them where Kitase would, um, ev- would, would write or, or, or program an event and then, and then Sakaguchi would say, ooh, I, I can do better. And then he would make one and they would try to like one-up each other all the time, right, as they would go through the game. So the point of all this is to say that Final Fantasy VIII was the first game in the series where Sakaguchi, the creator of the series, was not in creative control of the final product. And this is important. This is important to understand. Um, Here's a couple of quotes from Sakaguchi himself. He says, I wasn't directly involved with Final Fantasy VIII. I left it to another team to develop and let them do whatever they wanted with it and take it in their own direction. Then another quote from him. This is th- most of these quotes are coming from uh, Edge magazine. I've got uh, it's the it was the 30th anniversary of Final Fantasy edition, where oh, um, they had just tons like a whole like retrospective on the whole series. This is a really really good issue. But most of the the quotes that I'm reading now are coming from this. Um, but here's a good one from Sakaguchi. To be honest, when I heard their idea to write the game like a high school drama, I was concerned. But having told them they could go ahead in their own direction, I couldn't very well take it back. <laughs> um, and then he says, because of the approach that they took with that game, I pulled the rudder hard back the other way with Final Fantasy IX. I wanted to go right back to the beginning of the series with a traditional fantasy story, knights, castles, and so on. I figured that would calibrate and restabilize the series somehow. Okay, so I know that this is a, kind of a long introduction and a lot of this might be like what does this have to do with ff8 i promise that it has a lot to do with it because the creator of the series for the first time he had been sort of weaning kitase up to this point he'd been like working with him and he was essentially 
handing the reins to Yoshinori Kitase to lead Final Fantasy, especially with Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, Sakaguchi had no part of this. And what happened was is that he wasn't very... I don't want to say he wasn't happy. He did not agree <laughs> with a lot of the choices that were made by Kitase. And he, he felt that the series needed to be calibrated or restabilized. Um, he, they, there were... There was a lot of debating going on uh, during the during the creation of Final Fantasy VI and VII. Um, the core team, a lot of them were getting bored making Final Fantasy games. They kind of wanted to do their own things. They had different ideas about how the series should be handled, how it should be done in the future. There were a lot of disagreements happening behind the scenes. And when... And Sakaguchi was concerned about that because he didn't want people to feel like you know, all, all I can do in this company is make Final Fantasy. You know, that, that, that's all this company is. Like, it doesn't give me the freedom to do anything else. I can't, like, expand my own, you know, creative ideas. Or And he was concerned about that. He talks about that in an Iwata Asks um, interview. You know, like, I, 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 I really struggled with that. And so this was, his, was one step to trying to allow some of his junior developers under him to sort of, like, do what they wanted to do with a Final Fantasy game. And he didn't necessarily uh, agree with a lot of their choices. Right. Um, right. So let's talk about the team. Uh, director, as we said, was Yoshinori Kitase. He came into Square during the development of FF4, but didn't work on that game. He became an event director or a cutscene director on Final Fantasy V, and then was the director on Final Fantasy VI and VII, and now VIII. But as we said, this was the first time he was given total creative control and he could do whatever he wanted. Uh, Shinji Hashimoto was the producer of Final oh, Fantasy VIII. We actually saw him uh, our first... We when we When we went to uh, E3 in 2017, we, we walked in, literally opened... The doors opened, we walked in, we turned around, and Shinji Hashimoto just walked right past me into the Square Enix section yep. of the floor. <laughs> and I was like, holy crap, that's Shinji Hashimoto. <laughs> Um, and that anyways. was when I think Room Hearts 2.8 came out or something like that. And yeah. he was producing that at the time. Um, okay, so we have Ken Narita as a, as a lead programmer. He had been around since the Famicom days, but had also been on Final Fantasy VII in particular. Uh, Hiroyuki Ito, battle system designer. Right. We know him as the creator of the ATB system and a co-director on FF6. Um, yep. Yusuke Naura as the art director. He was also the art director on FF7. Uh, Kazushige Nojima as the scenario writer. He was um, the Final Fantasy VII scenario writer as well. Uh, Tetsuya Nomura as the character designer again, uh, with illustrations provided by Yoshitaka Amano. Uh, Amano had been around since the beginning. Tetsuya Nomura had been around since Final Fantasy IV, but on IV he was more of like a debug. He was on the debugging team. But FF5, yeah, he, he, he. FF5 was the first time he had a chance to like really do art on a game. So he did all the monster designs on Final Fantasy V. Um, he did, he created um, a couple of characters and, and did backstories in Final Fantasy VI and then was the main uh, character designer for Final Fantasy VII, as we know. Yeah. Um, but although he was the main character designer for VII, um, he has said in the past that Final Fantasy VIII is his actual like where he was free to do his actual style the way that he, you know, envisions the art. So for Final Fantasy VII, he was the character designer, but he um, 
you know, there was a lot of oversight from other people telling him how the characters should look, and then he would design them. For Final Fantasy VIII, he had more creative control over designing the characters how he how he wanted to. That's that's a very good point. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up um, because this is kind of going into again, like understanding where these developers are coming from on FF8, right? Yeah, they were not necessarily really in a. They weren't happy, totally happy, to, totally like satisfied creatively in the pre in their previous work on the Final Fantasy games. Um, here's a quote from Tetsuya Takahashi. He's the creator of Xenogears and now basically leads monolith soft that makes the xenoblade games he was a key graphic designer on final fantasy 4 through final fantasy 7 basically Uh, this quote he says when you keep on repeating the same thing even if it's something of real value people start to lose that sense of it being special there needs to be fresh ideas added to the mix but there was a lot of disagreement over just what kind of fresh ideas were needed um and and as as you just stated, Nomura, what did did the character designs on Final Fantasy VII, but not in a style that he yep. really wanted to do. Um, exactly. Yeah. And uh, here's a quote from Kitase underneath this: "It was just a continuation over and over again. Within those letters and opinions we saw, there were a number of people saying, 'Isn't it time for something new? We'd like a new system.'" So rather than something we felt unsure or or cautious about, we just really wanted to try something new and give it a go. Um, And then in that, I think the the PlayStation Japan um, interview that you're referencing, Kitase says that that Nomura's work on FF7 wasn't really his style. And Nomura said, finally, on FF8, I could draw my own pictures, not like the ones before. Yeah. So we see that within the junior development staff, uh, many of who worked on Final Fantasy VII and continued on same team, largely, mm-hmm. on Final Fantasy VIII, there was still a strong desire to do things differently than they had in the past. To take things in their own direction without the oversight of Hironobu Sakaguchi. And he said, okay, guys, I will let you do it the way you want to. Okay. Now, this is to explain the divisiveness behind Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> they're, they're, the reason I believe that there is so much divisiveness is because there are many things, not, not just things that people were used to seeing changed in Final Fantasy, which is the story and the setting and the characters and the character progression system. These were things that changed basically every time. There, were, there was more to it. There was the approach to storytelling. There was art direction. There was many other things that were yeah. were really, really different from, from all the previous Final Fantasy games before. And a lot of people could recognize that. And they said, what is going on here? This does not even feel like Final Fantasy to me anymore. What, what is this? If you go into the game understanding why they did this, understanding the reasons why they did this, and being open to that fact, right? Like, I'm, like I was saying earlier, there's really a lot of great stuff. There's some really cool ideas in Final Fantasy VIII. But if you went into it, and, and this is the problem I feel with like brands, like especially game companies. You see the Squaresoft logo, and you associate 
Final Fantasy. Again, a logo, right? A brand. Yeah. You associate it with that company. You say, this company makes this great thing that I love. And you're not actually seeing the faces of the people who actually do the groundwork behind the scenes. There, there's, there are people who you actually, whose work you actually are drawn to or that resonates with you or that, or that, that you prefer, right? Yeah. So I think games have that more so than anything else than movies or for sure books or any other type of entertainment medium. At least in movies, you're seeing actors, you know, people, whereas in games, nothing you see is, is, you know, it was all programmed basically. So mm-hmm. I feel like games have that. You can separate the artist from the art a lot, a lot easier just yeah. in your mind than with uh, anything like a movie or any other type of medium. Yeah. And especially with Japanese games too, a lot of these developers, they don't necessarily like being on camera necessarily or, or right. Or yeah, yeah, sure. They, yeah. you know, a, a lot of times I really yeah. struggle in my videos to find like pictures that are larger than 160 yeah. by 160 I images know. of these guys. They, they, they just don't have pictures of themselves yeah. on the internet that I can access to like show what this, who this guy is. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of people behind the scenes you don't see that have a pretty big effect on the final product. And even though this team was largely preserved from Final Fantasy 7 and 6 and 5, it's, 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 there, there's a key piece missing from this, the creator of the series. And all of a sudden, they want to go in a, in a vastly different direction from before. And so the game turns out really different. Now... Again, we're not saying whether or not that was the right or wrong choice or whether that was good or bad. What we're saying is, is that there are clear differences in style and that those differences are purposeful. They were intentional on the parts of those making the game because they wanted to do it differently from the way Sakaguchi had done it before. They were trying on purpose to break away from him and do it their own way and blaze their own trail. Um, here's another great quote from Kitase. Says Final Fantasy VII was the turning point for the series. The visual style was based on the manga style, and then we decided to go for a more realistic approach. There was a huge amount of passionate debate, but in the end, I believe it was the right decision. It put the series on the track it's taken ever since. Without that switch, I think Final Fantasy XIV and XV would have been very different games. After Final Fantasy VII came out, our rivalry with Dragon Quest changed. They didn't seem like rivals anymore. We were now focused on competing with Western games. Now, they, they talk about this all the time in interviews on the previous FF games, about how badly they wanted to outsell Dragon Quest. They were yeah. desperate to beat Dragon Quest. Yeah. And when they not only beat Dragon Quest, but smashed it into the dust with Final Fantasy VII sales, which just blew everything out of the water in terms of, like, JRPGs of the time. They decided to go a different direction. They were no longer competing. Dragon Quest has a very... Well, well, you know, the art style is kind of that Dragon Ball uh, art style. It's... it's, it's, And it tended not to change from game to game. Yeah. And very much. they they had always seen that as like the behemoth to take down, and now they didn't anymore. Now they wanted to compete with Western games, as he says. Say for for better or worse. That yeah. is 
That is what happened, yeah. Now here's another quote. This comes from The Edge magazine as well, from Kitase. When Sakaguchi first saw that demo at the school and a realistically proportioned human character, he said to me, hmm, that looks okay, but might you consider doing it with a more deformed character? He believed that it was that that was what the series should look like. I considered what he said, but ended up sticking to my guns. I wasn't well, involved. That really explains Final Fantasy IX and the yes, way those characters. Exactly. Yes, and yeah. and he goes on to say, I wasn't involved in FF9 because Sakaguchi had a new team that we'd established in Hawaii. Um, and we're making it in parallel to Final Fantasy VIII. Part of the reason it looks the way that it does is because we had a big debate about the art style on the PlayStation. The debate centered around whether we should keep the manga style, deformed characters of the sixth game, or aim for a more realistic approach and develop in that direction. Uh, Sakaguchi really wanted to do a classic-looking game on the new technology, which is where Final Fantasy IX came in. These are some very interesting quotes to try to break down. Um, and, and, and there was a debate about what the future of Final Fantasy should be, how it should be done. There was a philosophical debate happening between the creator of the series and Kitase. And they, they made games back to back. The Kitase led Final Fantasy VIII, the Sakaguchi led Final Fantasy IX. Which game, uh, not really much of a trivia question, outsold the other? <laughs> Well, I don't know, but I believe Final Fantasy VIII had more sales. Final Fantasy VIII crushed Final Fantasy IX in sales. I think mm. Final Fantasy VIII was, it, it didn't sell as many as seven, but it was up there in like the 8.5, right. 8. 8. 8.9 million. I, I think Final Fantasy VIII is the sixth highest selling game of the PlayStation console, just in general. Yeah. And Which so Final Fantasy IX sold about half as many. Like, yeah. mm. So... Now we look at the, uh, the situation in the company right there at the turn of the century. Spirits Within, uh, lots of pressure on the executives, Sakaguchi being a vice president at the time. Um, his and direction, his, his old ways, his direction, his philosophy on what Final Fantasy should be sells half as well as Katase's vision of what Final Fantasy should be. Yeah. And, now are we surprised when we see Final Fantasy X and thirteen and fifteen and this 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 real um, focus on this ultra realism in Final yeah. Fantasy versus before where it was very much about chibi manga styles, you know that kind of a mono a mono uh, surrealism in the in the concept mm -hmm. art, but then being realized as these cute little characters. Yeah. FF8 was the first step in taking Final Fantasy into this um what what how do they title it in Final or how do they word it in Final Fantasy 15 uh, a fantasy based in reality Oh that yeah yeah yep the and the entire concept of a fantasy based in reality started with Final Fantasy 8 it was Nomura's intended his preferred way of drawing characters and it yeah. was the way that Kitase and his group thought that it would be more appealing uh, to compete with Western games and go for that more of that realism. And, and Sakaguchi's philosophy about having the diorama style, uh, little deformed characters was eventually uh, dismissed and, and he left the company. So again, 
this saying this is not to say whether or not it was the wrong or right choice. Everyone's going to have their own opinion right. on that. It doesn't matter what I think about whether that's the right choice or not. What matters is that there are clear differences in the approach and the philosophy behind f- how Final Fantasy VIII was made. There was an expectation based on seven games beforehand, and this is the reason why there's probably some divisiveness on FF8. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the story inspiration, and then we'll kind of move into our thoughts on the actual part of the game that we played. So we're wrapping up a little bit on the development history section here. He says, there was a gear shift with the story in FF8. I think it was to do with the seriousness of the previous game's theme. I promoted that approach because we had this heavy, deep story with FF7 and Cloud's past and Aerith's death. I said, let's make things a little lighter and more cheerful now. Um, or sorry, that was Katasa who said that one. This next one uh, is from Naura. Uh, Final Fantasy VII had a strong, dark atmosphere, and I got bored of that. The previous Final Fantasy games had images of light emerging from darkness. It was very beautiful. But this time we wanted to turn it upside down. Shadows in light. That's how we made the atmosphere. In Seven, most of the staff were, were new to CG, but this time we had to be ambitious because uh, they were now used to it. Uh, the building with the gold halo reminds uh, reminds me of Costa del Sol or Golden Saucer. We will continue making interesting visuals. Sure, yeah. And then again, uh, another quote here. Final Fantasy VII was quite visually dark, and it was also very serious, heavy story. From the very get-go, we wanted to make Final Fantasy VIII something much lighter in both visuals and tone. When we sat down to think about what would make a lighter and happier story, we thought about our school days as students. I don't know if everybody had a good time being a student. Maybe not everybody did. But when I sat down with Tetsuya Nomura-san, this is Kitase talking, to hash it out, we thought, actually, yeah, a story about kids in school would be a nice, cheerful story to go with. Um, so that was the approach behind Final Fantasy VIII. The, uh, after especially six and seven back-to-back, which are yeah, some true. really heavy, dark material. Um, I mean, there's... there's a, there's suicide in there. There's there's a lot of heavy stuff, <laughs> right? Especially for games being made for the Super Nintendo PlayStation for kids to play yeah. for the most part. They purposefully said, we want to step out of that a little bit and, and do something with a tone that's a little bit lighter, a little bit happier, not quite so heavy. Um, and, so, and so that's why they chose the school setting for Final Fantasy VIII. And, and one, one more thing I wanted to mention before wrapping this up is that uh, Katase has done this a couple of times. Uh, he did it on what I just what I read here and I, I wrote down. I'll get to in a second for Final Fantasy. He did this, but he also did this during Final Fantasy XIII's production, and that was that he essentially asked his team to think about what is Final Fantasy, which is a question we've been talking about on this channel basically this entire yeah. year. <laughs> what <Yeah>. is the <laughs> spirit of Final Fantasy? Uh, a lot of people have uh, gotten tired of us talking about that. So I don't want to like go off on it any more than we have. I think we've pretty much set our piece on it. But the reason I bring it up is because it was important to the team making the game as well to try to get an answer to what they thought Final Fantasy was. 
Hey everybody, so I'm recording this uh, after having finished the recording with Kaysen for the podcast. There's a couple of things that I wanted to say that I forgot to mention uh, during the course of us sort of, you know, talking about it. Um, so I, I'll have a couple of these little addendum sections where I, I cut in and add a couple of things. But in regards to this discussion about what is Final Fantasy, what's the spirit of Final Fantasy, um, in that uh, PlayStation Japan interview, the same one where Nomura talked about how Final Fantasy VIII gave him his first opportunity to draw the characters the way he'd always wanted to, right? Not like before. In, in that same interview, the interviewer asks whether or not Final Fantasy VIII will have an overworld map. And I really thought Kitase's response to this was kind of funny. He says, yes, of course, a Final Fantasy without a world map isn't a Final Fantasy game. Uh, as somebody who has been calling for the return of the uh, old school style of an overworld map in Final Fantasy games, this felt a bit uh, like a vindication to me. <laughs> um, even, even Kitase in 1998, at the time of this interview, felt that an overworld map was an important piece of the identity of Final Fantasy, enough to have mentioned this, even if it was in sort of a joking manner uh, in this interview. And so, anyways, for those of us who love overworld maps and want to see that return, there at least was a time when Katase felt the same way. Uh, clearly, that's not the case anymore uh, with Final Fantasy XIII and Final Fantasy X and Final Fantasy VII Remake. But uh, I, I thought it was a funny uh, quote, so I, I wanted to throw that in there for you guys. He says, as an icebreaker at one of these meetings, I decided to do a little presentation where I went through and asked the people that have been involved in the Final Fantasy series, what is Final Fantasy? Um, and they they really debated over that, as we talked about. They, they really... Um, there was a lot of passionate debate about where that series should go. And obviously they arrived at different answers is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, and so what we're going to get in this game in final fantasy eight is Kitase Nomura and, and those lead developers who are still very much in prominent positions in the company, mm. their answer to what final fantasy is versus now this is for the first time where we're breaking Squaresoft into different divisions, right? Different teams, different units who make yeah, Final yeah. Fantasy games. And all of a sudden you start seeing very different versions of Final Fantasy pop up. Katase led Final Fantasy projects like Final Fantasy 8 and 10 and 13 and 7 Remake all share elements that tie them together and they feel like a coherent vision of what Final Fantasy is to him. Versus Yatsumi Matsuno's version of what Final Fantasy is. Versus uh, Sakaguchi's version of what Final Fantasy is. Versus uh, um, Hiromichi Tanaka's version of what Final Fantasy is with 11 and 14 uh, 1.0. Versus Yoshi P's version of what Final Fantasy is with Final Fantasy 14 and Realm Reborn. And of course the upcoming Final Fantasy 16. The point is, is that there's lots of different teams with different ideas about what Final Fantasy is, and you can start to see the similarities in style and approach and philosophy um, by looking into what they found important and why they did it. So, 
Uh, the only other thing um, that I kind of want to talk about a little bit here is uh, some of the influences. Um, so with with the, the big sales of Final Fantasy VII, because it was such a global success, and they started, a, they started more of an outward approach in terms of the audience, right? They started thinking about people outside of Japan a little bit more um, with Final Fantasy VIII. And a big focus was to create something that would appeal visually to people all around the world. And so a lot of the locations in Final Fantasy VIII are actually inspired by real-world places um, with architecture from Egypt and Greece and France and a lot of other European influences. Um, they also purposefully designed the characters to look predominantly European for that reason. Uh, quote here, it, it just felt more, it felt like more people in the world had a chance to play it not just in Japan. So there wasn't any pressure to make Final Fantasy VIII as successful as Seven or anything specifically like that, but there was definitely a sense of wanting to make a game that would appeal to people around the world. So, um, again, kind of like the, the art direction, the way that the characters were designed, um, they were yeah. designed on purpose to look a little bit more European than in previous games. Okay, I think that's, I think that's it for what I want to talk about with the development history section. Do you have anything that you want to add? Um, any thoughts that you had based on what we we're talking about or anything that I missed in your research? Nope. Okay. Well, that makes it easy then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You were very so thorough. let's uh, move into part two of the analysis, okay. which is going to be about um, summarizing what happened. Okay. What happened in this section we're talking about today? Um, do you want to handle this? Uh, what, what would be your summary as to sure. the section we played? So you wake up in the bed because you had an awful training session with Cypher and he's a total jerk and he's just a very bad person. And um, this is funny because this is something I didn't understand or notice at first uh, when I first played the game. But uh, it seems like there is a woman next to him who says something like, oh, it's good to see you again, and she leaves. And he asks about it later on, and he doesn't know who the woman is. But there's somebody there, kind of a, a little bit of a mystery there. Um, so, yeah, he wakes up. He's got his uh, little seat exam. So he goes to class, and his teacher, I always found this funny, his teacher's one year older than him. So she's very young. And um, Kistis, is that how you pronounce it, Kistis? I say Quistus, but I have no idea how it's supposed to be pronounced. I think Kistis is probably correct. Maybe. <laughs> All right. So on the topic of the pronunciation of Quistus's name, um, when I was doing the editing uh, for the podcast, I, I stream uh, my editing process, my video creation process for the $10 patrons. Um, there was some uh, discussion going on in the chat about how to pronounce the name. And one thing that, that they did that I thought was kind of funny is, is they brought up Google Translate, right? So they took the, the kanji for Quistus's name and, well, not necessarily. You'll see what I mean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on the screen here. But they went to Google Translate. So here we go. We have Kisutisu, which is how her name is, I guess, uh, how it would be transliterated or or how it's like sounded out, I guess, in Japanese. And, and when it comes to the English here, these, these are the kanji that they're using uh, for that. When it comes to sounding that out in English, Kistis. They're, they're trying to say Kistis, right? Kistis. 
from kistisu. Kistisu. Now, when you do it the opposite way, though, I think that this is actually correct. So there's an extra kanji in here. You see the difference here? They add a kanji after the third one. So, so this one here. Uh, the, this fourth kanji is added here. But listen to the way this one's pronounced instead. Versus this one. In here, they're kind of enunciating this extra ooh um, syllable. Kisutisu. But I don't think that that's correct. I think it's more like this. Kistisu. 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 There's like a little pause or just like a, a more silent um, way of pronouncing that ooh. That I think is more correct. Uh, anyone who has played the game in Japanese or has access to it, maybe you can, maybe we can actually look that up right now. Here we go. Yeah, C has the five. It has all five of those, um, all five of those kanji there. So this one here is actually the correct pronunciation in Japanese. Which is what they, which is what they translated from the English quistus. Quistus. Right? Quistus. So from quistus to kistitsu. Kistitsu. In Japanese. So I think what this means, I think what this means is that quistus is the correct pronunciation in English. <laughs> it's quistus, not kistus, not kistus, not kistis, but quistus. I don't know. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be interesting to see what you guys think about that. So anyways, um, they, they go to their school class thing and it's like they have a final exam going up and it's a, it's a hands-on kind of exam. So you go to this cave, you got to fight this monster. Um, and as long as you can do it in a certain amount of time, then you pass the test and you can, uh, you know, get a reward and you, you just kind of keep going. Um, so after that, the seed people, a seed member is basically just like a, a young special forces kind of thing where they use magic and summons and they have all these special abilities that they've learned in this school. It's kind of like a mercenary, uh, a mercenary school. Yeah, yeah. So, so higher. They, that's right. They make money yeah. by yeah. So it's like a it's like a private um, militia uh, that gets yeah. hired by like different uh, government organizations to like help protect them um, in their military campaigns. And so there are like several of these gardens. Um, yeah, different garden. Yeah. And th that's the the school, right? So the terminology is a garden, and then each individual student is a seed in that garden, mm -hmm. right? So that's why it's called right. seed. Uh, and they they're essentially a, a a militia for hire, and they train these students in in combat, military stuff like that. Yep. So whoever has the money, they're the ones that get the seed people on their side. Um, so uh, some city gets attacked; they're under siege for a, a couple days. And um, they decide that they can't hold them off anymore. And they, you know, send some money over to Balam Garden is what it's called. Um, and they send over a bunch of uh, seed people, some experts, and then some new trainees. And we're one of the new trainees, right? And so we're under Cypher. And uh, Cypher, who's the bully, right? So mm. he's not very nice to us. But, you know, we're like, whatever. We don't really care too much about it. Uh, but we're also teamed up with this other guy named Zell who is um, he's very bothered by Cypher and everything Cypher says and does. And um, 
Cypher can get under Zell's skin so easily, basically by doing nothing, calling him chicken wuss, which that was the best <laughs> insult ever. <laughs> Whereas Squall just brushes it off and he's just like, whatever, I don't care. I mean, it gets to him a little inside, but he doesn't show it. They get to this place and Cypher, of course, doesn't want to follow the plan. He wants to do his own thing. Uh, but because of that, um, you but you have to follow his lead. So, you know, he's the leader of your team. And Squall's kind of itching to do some some other stuff too, because what they, their assignment was really boring, and there was really no action where they were. So they decided to make their way up to this tower where a bunch of um, what's the word Gal Galbadia Galbadian soldiers yeah. are um, positioned outside of it, and they they don't really know why. They're like, what are they doing with this tower? So um, they beat up all the guards, make it up the tower, and it turns out that they've they've created this. Um, well, you don't find out exactly what it does till later, I suppose. But there's some crazy technology system with satellites and things that are on that tower that are kind of secret that people didn't really know about. And so, um, you know, you have to fight a boss or two while you're up there, which is Wedge and Biggs and then some demon thing that shows up. Um, but uh, part of the the weapon system that that is part of this tower um, there's this guardian that's like a spider thing, kind of like the scorpion from Final Fantasy VII that shows up in the first bombing mission. And so you've just got to run away from it because you can damage it all you want, but it self repairs. And so, you know, the, the team gets out of there um, just in the nick of time. And uh, the Dolet mission is, I well, at least what we were supposed to do. It was deemed a success. And then you, you're greatly rewarded. But that's where we... That's where we stopped, right? Now, is there yep. anything that you think is important that I kind of skipped over? Um, no, I think you covered it. Uh, the the rivalry between Cipher and uh, and Squall, um, essentially that yes. the the Dalit mission was serving as like their final exam. So, if they pass this exam, mm -hmm. right, then they graduate um, from being students to then being like full military members of of the of the academy, right? Um, so they're, they're being evaluated. Your performance is being evaluated on this mission. And, uh, that, that's kind of cool that they, they sort of work in, um, an evaluation, uh, system into, you know, how many oh, times, yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah, you know, if you, if you yeah. waste too much time talking to people on your way in, it'll like dock you points. And, um, depending on how many times you fight that spider as it's like chasing you down back to the beach, yeah. that'll affect your score. So they, they sort of yeah. work a, a, a system within the gameplay itself to judge your, or evaluate your performance. And uh, anyway, so it's all being evaluated to see if you will graduate to become like full members of seed. Right. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's a perfect summary. Um, so let's move into style. Let's talk about the style a little bit. This is essentially the pillar, the core of my personal disagreement with the Kitase-led Final Fantasy guys, the guys who mm -hmm. he works with, the Nomuras, the um, uh, Toriyamas, the Kitases of Square Enix. This is where I have a bit of a disconnect with these creators, and that is with yeah. style, the style in which they present their stories. Um, and I want to talk a lot first about a hook, like the, 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 the importance of a hook in storytelling. We evaluate the hook in Final Fantasy 4, 5, 6, and 7, and it seems like it gets better every time. <laughs> 
Like they have a really strong hook at the beginning of each of those games that just you you yeah. go through that opening scene. It's just like holy crap! You're just like just yep. they grab you by the collar and they just pull you straight into that world and you cannot turn away, right? Whether yeah. that's uh, whether that's Cecil um, stealing the crystals, uh, killing innocents in yep. the name, uh, you, you know, in loyalty to his king, and then being demoted and sent away. Whether that's uh, Terra with the the crown Terra, that's controlling her mind, yeah. and they're marching through the snow into Narsh Village cool. <laughs> with the music, yeah. the beautiful music that plays. Or whether it's Final Fantasy VII's bombastic sequence with that camera that pulls out and shows the city of Midgar in 3D, and it's the first time you've seen something like this ever. It's a holy fetch, yeah. and then the train pulls in, and you get that bombing mission music, and it's just intense, right? All of these games had these amazing hooks that just yeah. right you off the bat. We were also talking about the Final Fantasy V intro as well earlier. Yeah, Final Fantasy V yeah. is a great hook, I feel. Um, so... What what would you say Final Fantasy VIII's hook is? What what would you say? That's hard to say because uh, well okay so there's the there's the intro movie that you watch yes that is beautiful it really is uh, artistically you know brilliant mm-hmm. but it makes no sense <laughs> <laughs> especially to somebody who's never you know, played the game before you watch this and you're just like, like, what am I watching? So as far as a hook goes, that's actually not a very good hook because you don't even know, like, it looks cool. There's a flower field and some words and so, you know, like, don't forget me or whatever, some stuff going on. And then all of a sudden you're fighting Cypher and you just don't know what's happening. You don't even know who Cypher is. And then he wakes up and you assume, okay, well he was fighting Cypher, I guess. Um, And that's why he's, you know, in the infirmary or whatever but you know in in terms of having a good hook i don't think a cinematic that ends and when you're done with the cinematic you're just laying in a bed um and it's nothing it was just like a dream i don't think that's a very good hook because it doesn't make sense it's not connected to anything um and so the hook gosh it 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 would have to be the Dalit mission, but that's hours into the game in terms of when they finally ensnare you and say, hey, look, there's something bigger going on. Um, and this is really exciting kind of stuff. I guess it would have to be that mission, but that's so late for a hook. Okay. So many things you said, first of all, that I totally agree with, but that I am yeah. just itching to unpack here. The, <laughs> the game's hook in terms of what they intended to be the hook is mm-hmm. the opening cinematic. It's the it movie, is, yeah. it is that little movie that plays where Cypher and Squall are training and f- doing a, a gunblade duel, uh, kind of juxtaposed with all of these sort of this sort of like foreshadowing imagery of things that are going to happen later in the game. Yeah. Would it surprise you at all if I told you that Tetsuya Nomura directed that opening cinematic? Not at all. In fact, I think I, I, I think I, if I didn't know that, I knew it intuitively already because that is so, so obviously Nomura. Okay. Why, now, this is where we're talking about style, right? We're talking about style. There's a reason why you knew intuitively, even if you didn't know that that was Nomura, because you've seen Kingdom Hearts cutscenes, because you've yeah. seen, you've seen his style elsewhere and you know. Yeah. 
the his, the way he goes about presenting information visually to the player. Yes. Now, I agree with you. I think that the reason why, say, Final Fantasy VII's hook is so effective is because it's not just a cutscene. You are right. playing You're it. You're actively participating, yeah. Right? If if they could have had you actually fighting Cypher at the beginning in some way, I mean, I feel like that would have been a little bit more complete, but they just opted not to do that. Well, I actually think that that whole scene serving as the game's hook with the, the battle with Cypher is just kind of, it's just, like you said, I think there's a much more effective place to have started. And that is, imagine if the game opened up with that shot of the sea with the moon in reflection and those barges are just yes, going, and across, the boats going across and yeah. they just, they just crash onto the beach like Normandy and that the, the bar just slams open and squall and t- team just come running out and you just start getting the yeah. fights like right away. If the game just had start started right with the Dalit mission instead of what you learn is just a training exercise accident as as big as they try to make that scene in with the opening cinematic the the, the um, like totally amazing Uematsu piece happening behind that right with um yeah very uh, it's well done that it's a well done movie honestly liberty fatale playing it's like very epic and you got the chorus the, the the choir singing and this big orchestra the first piece in the history of the series to have been actually recorded with a real orchestra by the way um, mm, nice. Final Fantasy VII had no real orchestra recording, right? It was all MIDI. All the music was MIDI. So this was the yeah. first recorded, like, live orchestra in a Final Fantasy game. Liberty Fatale. I love that piece. I love that track. It's really great. The, 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 the thing about it is, is that I used to listen to that when I was in Vegas, when I was on my mission. I used to listen to that and imagine all of these epic... Uh, battles in my mind and I, I would sort of like block or um, storyboard in my head like these epic battle sequences to it and to <laughs> put that music to what is essentially a two guys training <laughs> it just it just feels kind of hollow yeah. in comparison to how big and epic this music is and it's it's almost meant to feel like because you don't know that this is a training exercise at all. You're just watching two guys right. dueling with blades, and it's like, whoa, who, who are these guys? What's going on here? And They're which fighting. One's, which one's the good guy? Yeah, and you don't <laughs> even know. And then it's revealed, oh, he was just training, and he got cut, and it was an accident, or maybe possibly not an accident on Cypher's part, but still, right. it, it's it, they were just training, right? It's just kind of like, it feels like, oh, this epicness, and then it's just like, oh, it's just training. And to use that yeah, as a hook... Cool in place of the Dalit mission. Okay, and so another thing that uh, the chat brought up to me as I was editing the video was that the demo of Final Fantasy VIII actually does start off with the Dalit mission. I did not know that. I never played the demo of Final Fantasy VIII. So it opens up, um, and this to me was a little bit reminiscent of like the NES Final Fantasy games with just like a... um, like an opening paragraph of like background information, kind of like a title crawl in one of the Star Wars movies or something. But it, it gives a little bit of background to what's happening, and then it just starts you right off in the same place that I was talking about uh, starting off here in the podcast. So it's interesting that in the demo, they did start off right there on the Dalit mission. However, I still really feel like 
it would have been stronger to start off right there. And if they had used Liberi Fatali, the Uematsu track uh, that they use in the opening cinematic of the actual game, if they used that track here as the opening for the Dalit mission. And so I decided to kind of do my own cut of this, right, to, to put Liberi Fatali behind this and, and show you guys uh, a version of the opening scene that combines those two things. So it'd be interesting to see what you guys think about it. Now, a lot of people will say, well, they needed to do the tutorial for um, the GFs first, right? Like, but but think about Final Fantasy VII. They threw you right into it, and they didn't give you a tutorial on Materia. Right. You still had access to Magic. They still had Materia equipped, but they hadn't actually given you the tutorial yet on Materia. And they allowed you to have limited access to the game's systems, but let you sort of play it and battle and figure it out with the limited tools they offer you in that first mission before they started tutorializing things, before they started getting into the nuts and bolts of like, you know, teaching you the game. They let you play through a sequence yeah. that hooks you into the world, into what's going on, into the characters with a really exciting sequence. And I feel like the Dalit mission would have been perfect to fit that purpose. Let's talk a little bit about the structure and the style of that in, that introductory uh, cutscene, right? Let, let's just break it down a little bit. What's happening here is that we don't know this yet if you're watching it for the first time, but Cypher and, yeah. and Squall are training. And this is actually the first time they ever used motion capture in the Final oh, Fantasy series. Nice. Again, this nice. was a move toward that realism that they were trying to achieve. Right? Yeah. All of the cutscenes in Final Fantasy VII were hand animated. Um, all those FMV sequences, Sephiroth descending, and all of those all those scenes were hand animated. But with Final mm -hmm. Fantasy VIII, they wanted it to look real, so they did motion capture on that Cipher and Squall battle as they're fighting back and forth. And you can tell, you can tell that that was motion captured. It's there's way yeah. too many nuances of the way human bodies move for that to have been hand animated. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they're battling, and then we just have these these juxtaposed images. And I want to say, first of all, that the images, the, the imagery is striking. It's very cool to look at. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's beautiful. Very well done in that regard. The cinematography, the level of the cinematography is yeah. very high. Uh, you have like that shot where like the gun blade just comes like swinging down from the clouds of lightning. and just, just like slams yeah. into the ground. Uh. 
a lot of scenes that we're going to see actually later on in the game, cutscenes from later on. They show Idea and Renoa. Exactly. Um, they show a ton of that stuff up front. It's, so yeah. it's kind of in, in that sense, it's kind of like a trailer yes. for the game you're playing. You're it's, watching a little trailer of your game. You know, huh. when uh, this was, you know, this was true of the time when you would leave the game alone on like the start screen and then yeah, it would yeah, eventually it just kind of go into like showing you a little demo of the game. Yeah. It's, it's almost like it's serving the purpose of being that and also the game's opening hook at the same time. It's like mm -hmm. trying to give you a taste of like all these different parts that are coming later, but at the same time also being the first scene of the game, like simultaneously being the game's first sequence of yeah. this training between yeah. Cypher. And it's done in this style that is very pr predominantly... Nomura Kitase's way of sort of like there's there's a spectacle to it. There is a um I don't know how to how to say it other than like a weight visually to it that suggests this depth that they're promising to you. Yeah, it definitely sets the mood for the game and i feel like it actually does that quite well it sets the mood for the game uh while maybe not being the best hook but and i i think that that's actually a really good point it sets an atmosphere mm -hmm. it gives you a feeling does, yeah. a feeling mm -hmm. that they're trying to communicate about like what what the developers are trying to communicate emotionally to you yeah however i feel like that imagery is mostly hollow <laughs> um so let's talk a little bit about um, the, the the text that comes on screen. So it starts off pushing out into the ocean. The camera's pushing out into the ocean. And some words come on screen. And I wrote down the dialogue here. And, and it, it's, it's so hard to explain how differently it feels when you're, like, watching it unfold versus just, like, really paying attention to what it says. The way I, I'm just going to read you what the text says. And, and I want to get your opinion on how it lands differently for you watching it in the game versus actually just examining what the text says. Hmm. I'll be here. Why? I'll be waiting here. For what? I'll be waiting for you, so if you come here, you'll find me, I promise. Now, hmm, what do you want me to say? About I, I, want, <laughs> I just want to, I want to get your opinion on... Heavy, heavy implications for the end of the game, for like the, the final, you know, end of the game stuff. Yeah, yeah let's not spoil anything. Uh, I guess we'll just say yeah. this. This is a conversation <laughs> that is going to happen later in the game. So yes. this is a conversation that we will revisit. So keep this in mind if you're playing this game for the first time. This text... But my gosh, I could... Like, and luckily for me, I mean, after playing the game, they kind of do show basically the same cutscene again. And it just makes a little bit more sense this time. But there's yeah. no way you're keeping that in mind as you play the game. Here, here's here's the, the reason why, stylistically, I don't find dialogue like this to be very effective, but it is the kind of thing that Nomura does all the time in Kingdom Hearts 2. And it, and it, yes, and it, it's a, re yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a yeah. reason why I really struggle to, why those games don't resonate with me. 
Mm. This is a conversation that's going to happen later in the game. We don't know that as a first-time player. It's just dialogue. Dialogue should be communicating something to us. It should be giving us context as to what's happening here. If we're just Uh, looking at the dialogue, and and this is coming again from a writer's perspective. Um, Again, I'm taking a, a creative writing course right now. I've taken many in the past. One of the things that they will hammer into your brain is to avoid repetitions. It's a really big thing in writing to not just repeatedly say the same things over and over again. It gets fatiguing. Um, It it, it starts to diminish the impact of the words. And it's just like, okay, get to the point. This dialogue is, is essentially, when you break it down, character A saying, I'll be waiting. And character B saying, huh? Three times. <laughs> Three times. They yeah. say the same thing. And it, 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 it doesn't lead anywhere. There is no revelation. There is no information communicated in that dialogue. It is a repetition of essentially nothing we can draw any context from. It's I'll nothing. be waiting. And that's initially, that was my initial um, kind of feeling about it was that, especially as a hook, I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And so knowing that as, as you know, as the director or programmer, whoever was making this, knowing that you're putting something in the game at the beginning that doesn't make sense, but looks cool. Maybe it was a marketing decision. I don't right. know who. Now, who now this that. is, this is about setting up mysteries. Right. Sure. Like it's and I I can't stress enough that the way the style in which this is presented suggests like that this is really dramatic and serious and important. Yes. But the funny thing is, is the mystery shouldn't be what the fetch are they talking about? (laughs) That shouldn't be the mystery. (laughs) I mean, I I shouldn't say should or shouldn't. Right. Because we're not going to be that specific in our critiques. But. I would say that that may miss the mark a little bit if people, because if people don't even know what they're talking about, they're not going to hold it in their minds to the end of the game. Yeah. And, and this, this, uh, this intention of it being really deep, you know, deep and, and dramatic and profound is, is represented with all the ellipses, all the dot, dot, dots after everything. Yeah. It, it suggests yeah. this tone in which it's being spoken of being very, like, very serious. I'll be here. Yeah. This airiness, this wait. Why? I'll be mm-hmm. waiting, in quotes. Dot, dot, dot. Here. Dot, dot, dot. For what? I'll be waiting. Dot, dot, dot. For you. Dot, dot, dot. So... Dot, dot, dot. If you come here, dot, 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 you'll find me, I promise. It's just so over the top in terms of the style without saying anything at all. Right. That is meaningless dialogue for the context in which we are being presented right now. That doesn't mean anything. It's just suggesting, guys... It's essentially the developer just being like, I promise you, that's going to be important later. (laughs) There's going to be something real serious and dramatic in this game. I promise you. Just wait for it. 
instead well, of like actually suggesting what anything else it just sets a mood it just makes yes. you feel something as opposed to being actually relevant or important at all this is where the term i think that's used a lot in kingdom hearts uh feels over reels comes from right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it hits you in the feels yeah. you feel it. Uh, you yeah. feel yeah. the intention behind it but like when you think about it what is actually what is it actually saying so there's a lot of that going on in this introductory yeah. cinematic movie thing. And, um, it's a lot of like, it just, it, a lot of it to me feels very random in terms of the imagery that they show. It doesn't like what's actually happening. What is literally happening is Cypher and Squall are fighting each other. S Squall's yeah. gunplay did not fall from the freaking stratosphere and crash into the ground and then he picked it up and started fighting with it he pulled it off right. out of his freaking like little gun case that he carries he or whatever holster, yeah that a lot of this is not it's not literal imagery it's not literally happening it's just done for style's sake style for style's sake without really like thinking about how this genuinely or literally applies to the scene in which happening which is why it feels more like a demo that plays on a start screen than it does right. like the actual first scene of the game but it is the first scene of the game because the second scene of the game is squall waking up in the infirmary and being like oh you were you had a an accident in training you got sliced up and uh right you know now now we patched you up go back to school this is one of the things that that separates Sakaguchi's approach and style to storytelling from Kitase and Nomura's. And it is something that yeah. we will see more of, not just in this game, but in the series. And so you have to kind of take that, you have to kind of like say, okay, this is this is what they're going for. And um when you have that in mind, right? And, and you realize this isn't going to be told quite the same way as what I'm used to in previous games or whatever it might be. Um, you, you, you kind of have to try to get into their, their yeah. mindset with this. Okay. This they're trying to communicate a tone to me. What is that tone? Did, does the tone work now? Does it work? This is something I really, yeah. I really want to stress. If you go on YouTube and you just look up Final Fantasy VIII opening sequence and you go into the comments section and you look at the like to dislike ratio, people freaking love this sequence. They love it. People think it is awesome because to a certain extent, it is awesome. Visually, it's really cool to watch. And the music is amazing. It is technically very impressive. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the animation is like just unbelievably cool. It's a very, very cool sequence. Yeah. And even just the creativity, the, the montage like blending of, you know, reality with what, you know, can't possibly be real. I mean, it's very creative as well. Very unique in that yeah. sense all right so one more thing i wanted to talk about in terms of the style of the opening cinematic is uh some of the symbolism that they're using there's there's very much this feather motif that they have uh going on um and it's important to note that it, it seems with this shot where where squall sort of like swings the blade and then it kind of kicks up all these feathers and then the camera pushes through that and you see the the angel wings that are sort of like hemmed into the back of Renoa's vest. It seems that they're making a connection between the feather symbol and Renoa as a character. Now, what that represents, 
Um, it, it, I mean, it's probably true that she's supposed to be like this angelic type figure for Squall, right? Someone who, um, redeems his character in a way, like brings him out of his shell. He's sort of on this path of reclusiveness, um, resistance to becoming the leader and the man that he needs to be, and that she's an important figure in sort of drawing drawing him out of that, right? I think that that's more or less what that's meant to symbolize. So I thought it was important that we at least make a note of that as we're looking at the uh, the construction of this opening cinematic. But again, for me, and I, I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I just want to reiterate that the style in which it's presented just tends to sort of enforce and suggest this intense weight and drama and grandiosity (laughs) to everything that suggests this really deep, profound sort of uh, underlying meaning to everything. But personally, I just don't see the depth. I think it's all pretty... It's pretty standard stuff. And it all just amounts to two guys were training and there was an accident. And the the attempt to turn that into something much bigger and more epic than it actually is falls a little flat for me. And it's a big part of the reason why I just don't tend to love Tetsuya Nomura and Yoshinori Kitase's style of storytelling. It, it feels a bit melodramatic. It just comes off too strong and doesn't have the weight underneath it that supports the level of intense weight that they're putting visually on the screen. So for whatever it's worth, that's how I feel about this. And this is part of the style that I tend to, that I, it doesn't work for me. I I don't find it effective to me. It's distracting. It's, it feels kind of hollow, but clearly for a, a great majority of people who played the game, they freaking yeah. loved it, right? So just want to put that out there. Um, one thing I also want to mention, though, and this was kind of cool to learn, the scene where Squall and Renoa fall into each other's arms right at the end of that sequence, which is, again, a scene that's going to happen later. The, the, that's, that is essentially where mm-hmm. the inspiration for the logo of the game came from, right? With Squall and Renoa holding each other behind the Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, title um and amano said that the reason he chose the color scheme he did which is kind of that yellow to orange warm sort of like gradient is because of the sunset behind them as they're falling into each other's arms in that cutscene. the music was awesome though uh did you i didn't know if you knew this but uh that 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 liberty fatale track was used in the olympics in 2004 i think for synchronized swimming uh, I, there was a, a team in the synchronized swimming event that used Liberty Fatale as the music. Um, so nice. it's really good. <laughs> nice. It's really, really good. I can't stress enough. I really like that track. I really like the music overall in Final Fantasy VIII. But to, to wrap up our yeah, discussion good. discussion of the style, aside from, um, aside from this sort of way that they go about presenting their dramatic sort of tone, and and some of the the you know the issues that I have with that, 
I think the humor in this game is really excellent. I think like the dialogue between characters, the way they interact with each other is very convincing and very believable. Um, much more so than any Final Fantasy game that came before it. I guess this is kind of a transition, oh, sure, sure. a transition from style into um, into characters a little bit. But I really love the feel of Balam Garden. Um, yeah, me too. Actually, running yeah. around in that place, it just really yeah, sets this it. perfect tone for a school setting. That sort of like yeah. l- that lighter um, tone that they were going for. Where they said that they they wanted to kind of return to the, the their school day. Um, you know, their roots in that and sort of like yeah. present the feeling of being in school again. Balam Garden has that feel. Um, yeah. And, and it really does. It really does give me some of that. Like, I don't know if nostalgic is kind of is exactly the right word, but some of those feelings I had as a teenager. Right. Like sure. in in school and, you know, some of the insecurities I had a lot of, you know, a, a lot of things that were exciting to me at the time that eagerness for life, I guess. Um, or, or just what's for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the few things that any kid has control over when they go to school and like high school, it's which lunch do you want to get? Oh my, there's hot dogs today. Oh my gosh, man. I love the hot dogs. You know, like for me, it was pizza. Anytime there's pizza, it was like, mm. that was the best day to be in school. Um, and the way that they several places in the beginning, they just talk about hot dogs and how good the hot dogs are. Oh, the hot dogs are all sold out now. Everyone's so mad now. Um, and Zell just loves those hot dogs. Uh, that's great. That actually, I feel like that was a very nice touch. I'll be a very simple. Yeah. And to me, that was it's very convincing. It 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 really yeah. feels like a lived in yep. school environment that reminds me yeah. of elements of my own uh, uh, school days, you know. Um, and I think that they really nail the, the age of the characters, uh, in a very effective way. Um, the characters feel like the appropriate age, you know, these, these older teenagers, you know, maybe like a junior, senior year in high school type of age, you know, um, actually I probably should have looked into how old they're supposed to be in the game, but they, they feel like older adolescents or like young, you know, young adults, um, with the kind of same carries and worries and concerns and, uh, you know, uh, energy and, and everything that, that is, it just feels so convincing for that time of life. And there's some really great humor, um, too, that, that I think that they nail that really is in line with the great, uh, humoristic aspects of previous Final Fantasy games. And I want to uh, make a point on this. A lot of that is Kitase. Kitase has mm. a, a good sense for humor. Um, Final Fantasy V, the first game that he worked on uh, in, in like a higher oh, yeah. role, he, a lot of what mm. he, he did was to help take Sakaguchi's very dramatic and serious premise for Final Fantasy V and inject a lot more lighthearted humor into it. Um, so like Final Fantasy V started off like a much heavier tone kind of like ff4 was um but he sort of like injected a lot of that playfulness that lightheartedness that humor into ff5 and i think he has a good sense for that and an ff8 um captures that just as well as any previous final fantasy that came before it i think specifically one of my favorite scenes is you were just alluding to it in the cafeteria uh, you go in there mm. not only do you have 
Zell running in there trying to get the hot dog and being like upset that it's all sold out. You know, a great sense of personality you get from the characters there. Um, and then, of course, uh, Cypher being like, he's he's like one of those uh, students who have, um, he's like a hallway patrol guy or whatever. Yes. Anyways, as, yeah. as soon as a student gets a little bit of power, they try to like exercise oh, yeah. it over others. And he's like, hmm, running in the hallways. I'm going to have to arrest that student. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then uh, also yeah. Fujin and Raijin, uh, right? The two yes, characters yeah, who are part yeah. of his little group. The now, right-hand people, yeah. Uh, usually, I tend to not um, enjoy characters that are strictly archetypes. Like their entire purpose is just to be comic relief or whatever. And that's all there is to their character. But right. usually that I reserve that feeling for characters that play more of a major role in the story, right? So if you had turned like Zell or Selfie or somebody like that into a character like, uh, I think it's Fujin, who just says one word answers in one all caps. One word answers, yeah. yeah. Right? And, and the entire purpose is just to, like the whole, the whole personality of the character is wrapped into this kind of just archetypal, um, you know, formula, Right. Just wouldn't it be funny if this character with this one and only trait was in this situation? That's what you see a lot in a lot of anime and and JRPGs with characters. They're really not, they're not fully fleshed out characters. They're just archetypes that they put into a bunch of situations. You always know how they're going to respond. It's always going to be the same. It gets very repetitious. In this Mm -hmm. case, for Fujin and Raijin, I love it. (laughs) Um, I love the dynamic that they have. Uh, Fujino is just pissed one word all caps like yelling answers and 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 uh, <laughs> Raijin's kind of like you know little tag that he puts at the end yeah. of everything like he'll just say a line of dialogue you know blah 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 you know and they they extend this and it's so funny into his thoughts too where I think he's just thinking something and then he says you know <laughs> like in his own brain <laughs> and it's That's just funny. it's it's really really quirky and charming and it, and it, it it's a, it's a very final fantasy thing i feel and i yeah. feel like that was a big part of kitase's contribution to the series and um it, it's really great here it's really great um uh so i've been talking here for a while do you have any observations as you were playing through uh before we get to like the um the like tutorial stuff uh, as for the art and stuff, uh, um, just just any just anything you had, but maybe anything on characters too. Uh, how how do you feel about the characters in the game? Their introductions in these scenes. Well, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, I I get why they made Quistus how she is because she's very young and she ends up being part of the, you know, the team more or less. Um, but I and you know, there's other reasons too later on that you find out, but um. The fact that she's so young, <laughs> she when you go through that first uh, that first little pre screening test thing that they do, and she's like, usually the boys are really uh, uh, get really nervous and mess up when I go with them on these mm-hmm. these kinds of uh, uh, tests. Um, she she just feels like she should be a student. She feels like one of the students. I don't know why. After she's just for one year, she's already a teacher. I don't know exactly how things work. I always just felt weird about that. Um, but in terms of like who she is and how she acts, I think it's fine. I think it's very good. Um, yeah, I actually really like the characters. Um, I think that they were really well done. I think Cypher, I mean, he overplays it. He's, he plays it a little too, 
too heavy, but that's just his personality. Same thing with Zell. Uh, they're all very different. Like every character that you meet has their own very unique voice and they're very different, um, yeah. especially like selfie and just all of them. Um, so I think the characters were, were quite, uh, quite well, quite well written. So, um, there's kind of two elements to this. And again, we're not spoiling anything for future episodes, but one of the major criticisms you'll see for final fantasy is that the characters don't have a lot of, um, character development. Like in, in the previous yeah. games, especially FF six and seven, they, they dedicated a lot of time to telling the backstories of the characters and giving them like a kind of a dramatic, uh, history that sort of like led them into yeah. being a part of the team or whatever. And Final Fantasy VIII doesn't do this. This is something that you should know from the start. It it does not do yeah. this for its cast, but there, there is a, is reason, a reason why. Yeah. Whether or not you're going to agree with that reason or like the reason <laughs> is another story for another episode. But there is a reason. Yeah. So. Yeah. So because that decision was made, right? We, we just know that up front. We're not going to get a lot of like background on the characters. The way that they ended up writing them with that in mind, I think is very effective. I think it works. Their chemistry is great. The personalities are yep. the right types of archetypes to work within the scenes. I think there's great banter between them. There's just a lot of great personality and style that they exude from how they talk and how they're animated. Like I love Zell's, uh, he, he gets up and just kind of starts like air boxing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you just, you get a sense for who they are. They communicate that so well, not by telling you or showing you their history, but by who they are and how they talk and, and, uh, like, like you can just, you can tell a Zell piece of dialogue from, a cipher yeah. piece of dialogue from a squall piece of dialogue. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think they did a really good job. And I, I actually really like the cast quite a bit. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, that they're not fans of it because we don't really get to know them in their history so well. But again, that was a choice that was made for the story. We'll get to that later. Yeah. But given the style that they chose to go in, I actually really, I'm really endeared to the characters. I, I, I really like them a lot. Um, there's not, especially there's not a single character I don't game, like. Yeah. Especially playing this game a second time. It's really, and knowing some of the stuff that, you know, you find out later, uh, it's better. I think this game is, uh, I don't know if, if you're somebody out there who only played the game once, uh, try picking it up and playing it again. Uh, because understanding a lot of what's happening, especially in early on in the game, um, it helps a lot and it helps, it helps to, uh, like I think you said it, it endears you to the characters a little bit more, I think. Um, but even, even without that, you know, it's just an interesting situation. And the, the, especially as you, you were telling me earlier that they're going with this high school drama kind of field, everything and um, how Sakaguchi didn't like that. Yeah. Um, but everyone can relate to that. You know, mm -hmm. I thought it was really good. And it was something that the, the developers of this game just felt very inspired to do, right? Like they, they had yeah. a passion to tell that kind of story and there was mm. something that they wanted to say in that setting. And yeah. for better or for worse, they capture the spirit of that sort of like school day setting immaculately. It's like perfect. Um, yeah. I just, 
I think it's so well done and it's so believable and convincing to me. Um, and talking about uh, what you were saying on Kistis, right? Um, it's funny because I've had a couple of teachers through my junior high and high school days who were not that much older than me. Um, really? I think that, well, one in particular, it, it was uh, Miss Wiley, who was my uh, sophomore English teacher, who gave the assignment for the book that I oh, have been working on yeah. ever since. She's my favorite ever teacher since. I've ever had. I think she was, yeah. I didn't know this, but she was like 21 years old. And I would have been 16 or 16 at the time, I think. So I looked up to her as somebody who is like an authority, like she's my teacher, right? But Mm -hmm. she's not really that much older than me. She had probably just graduated college. This was probably her first year teaching. And so I, I, I kind of relate. I've had a couple of teachers like that that weren't really that much older than me. Um, she, you know, he's just being one year older, being an instructor after having graduated from uh, into seed the previous year is a little different, yeah. but, but I do like the, I do like the rapport that she kind of has with Squall. I think it reveals a lot about his character, the way that she talks to him, where she finishes his sentences for him and yes. sort of like teases him and she's trying to get him to come out of his shell a little bit. And he's like resisting her. Not- yeah, it's not just squall either. It's um there's like a a a club of of kids who just really like Quistus. She's yeah. just, she seems to be like the cool fun teacher that everybody the popular likes. Kid, you know, everyone yeah. knows, everyone can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, so I I really like the just the dynamic, the the way the characters play off of each other. Uh, a term that You know, I have I have a thought. What if she, because I, I just, it's something that I just can't get out of my head. But what if she was like a tutor or a, like a teacher's assistant or instead of a professor? Yeah, instead of being the the teacher of the class, like that way she was a classmate. You know, she's part of the class, but hmm. she's just the number one student. She's just the best. She's just you know the the brightest. She's the one that tutors all the other kids she's the i don't know you're saying you're saying you'd find it more convincing if it was more done that way just in general it's just because it, especially because she kind of you know kind of likes squall right? <laughs> yeah yeah and it's pretty it's clear just she does her yeah. being the teacher just it's just weird it's just something that i i don't love that decision that they made if for the character she is and for her personality and for how things happen um she shouldn't be his teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think that's valid. Um, I don't really have an yeah. opinion on it one way or the other. Um, I guess it didn't really stand out or bother me uh, in okay. my playthroughs yeah. of it. It probably didn't for but, most people. But it, it makes sense. I, I think what you're yeah. saying makes sense. I think that's a totally valid thing to say. And if they had made her more of a teacher's assistant or something like that, I don't yeah, think it so would have. still it, an authority. Still. It, it, it wouldn't have changed anything about the story, right? It no. wouldn't. It wouldn't have made it any worse. But I don't think so. I, I could see it being a little bit more convincing the relationship that she has to Squall that way. I can I can see that point of view. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, I I love the pre-rendered backgrounds of this game. Just the pre-rendered backgrounds in the Final Fantasy PlayStation games in general are awesome. But like the environments lovely. are so freaking beautiful in this game. Yeah. Uh, every screen just feels like so perfectly composed. I really miss this style, the style of the PlayStation one pre-rendered backgrounds. I wish that 
to, that some indie developer or somebody today would come around and do like a modern take on this idea. Um, yeah, I just I just love camera it. where you can look anywhere. Yeah. It's you just you miss the framing. You miss yes. like the I don't know. It's just there's not... there's a tone. Yeah. There's this this is all has to do with cinematography, right? As a cinematographer, mm -hmm. the way you frame something communicates. Yeah. Tone, intention, message, story. All of that is communicated by what you choose to frame. And there is something to be said about the fact that with a free camera and with the player controlling that, um, it takes away a little bit of what you can do as a, as an artist to yeah, frame the composition so that you can Even communicate. The characters something. are moving within a set frame that has been predetermined by the artist. Um, because at the, in today's games, if you want a set framing for something, well, you just turn it into a cutscene. just make it a cutscene. But the way that they did it in Final Fantasy is you, you can move around within the frame. I don't know. It's better. Yeah. Okay. In so let's talk about the tutorial now. So, uh, you, you, uh, kiss this lets you know that you, you need to take a prerequisite before you can take the final exam. So before you can go right. on the Dalit mission and be evaluated for the final exam, there's one more prerequisite squall has not done yet that the rest of the class has. And that is to go to yeah. the fire cavern and fight Ifrit and obtain that GF. Um, so you go out to the front of the school and she gives you a tutorial on junctioning. Now, I'm going to echo your sentiments from earlier that this is one of the worst tutorials I've ever seen. <laughs> and I don't like it. I've really been thinking about, okay, sorry. I, I broke my own rule. It is a I very, know, we're not supposed to, if we don't it's like a it very, <laughs> it's a very confusing and ineffective tutorial. I've talked to a lot of people who the first time playing this game, they go through that tutorial. They have absolutely no idea what the heck they're supposed to do <laughs> after the tutorial's yeah. over. Now, I've said this in the past as well, and people were like, I was five years old, and I perfectly understood it. And I'm sure we're going to get comments like that. But there, I, there are some reasons specifically why I believe that this tutorial creates confusion. I'd never realized this before, but they never defined the term GF at any point in the dialogue before this tutorial and they don't even tell you what a GF is in the tutorial, like what that stands for, mm -hmm. the, the, the letters. Guardian mm -hmm. Force. They have, never, they have never actually identified what GF means. <laughs> and all of a sudden they're talking about just junction this GF and then blah, 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 blah. It's just junction like... Junction the GF. There's, there's, the uh, GF can level up their own abilities. Yeah, that's a good th point. This is terminology within the world that we have not actually had defined for us as the audience yet. Yeah. GF, as far as I'm concerned, as a young man playing this game for the first time, is girlfriend. I don't know yes. what that <laughs> means in the game's world. <laughs> yeah. You figure it out as you go along and they right. show you like a, a picture of a summoned monster or something. Okay, I guess that's a summon. Mm. But like when you're going to use terminology that isn't like common, like I'm going to use the word junction instead of the word equip just because. We're going to junction a GF now all of a sudden is automatically confusing. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. If you have one term that you don't understand very well, 
that's hard enough. But when you throw two terms in one sentence that are not explained, that that just exponentially makes things more difficult to understand. And all of a sudden you start feeling overwhelmed and it just keeps going. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it's, it's, it's not like it's a very complex system, but there right. are a lot of steps to it that are not typical. This is very unique to Final Fantasy VIII. Um, yeah. These are systems that we've never seen before in the series, very new ideas. And I like them. I think that they're good and they're not that hard to understand, but they're not very well explained either in that tutorial. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of the tutorial, she says, if there's anything you have questions on, you can go into the menu and look at the tutorial there again. Never in my life have I thought to do that. <laughs> and I did this time. That's and funny. holy crap, is it so well explained in the menu tutorial. Every really? term, every term, junction, GF, <laughs> every single term that they use in the game is explained in great depth in that huh. tutorial, in the menu. So anybody who is not an, a moron like me, who just like, okay, I guess I don't get this now because that tutorial was bad. Moving on to the next section, anybody who actually legitimately had questions like me who did not look at that is going to be very confused. But if you actually took the time to read it, it is, I mean, just perfectly explained in, in great detail. Any, everything and everything you could possibly want to know is all there. Um, so anybody who did that would have uh, had a much better idea of what was going on. <laughs> so I very much suggest if you're playing this game for the first time, if and you're a little confused about how the system for junctioning works, go check out that tutorial in the menu. It's much better at explaining it. Um, okay, uh, so the gunblade as a weapon. What? How do you feel about it? How do you feel about the gunblade? Do you like it? Do you think it's it, lame? I will say, because I didn't play Final Fantasy VIII until a couple years ago, but I, I was familiar with the gunblade as soon as the game came out in 99, 2000 or so. And I did, as, as a young teenager... I thought it was the coolest thing in terms of design. Yeah. Um, and also the way that it functions with the timed hit, whereas you can mm -hmm. hit something and shoot if you, you know, if you do things right. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Honestly, um, it's not practical at all. If you think about it for very long, <laughs> especially since it's like a pistol. I mean, there's one thing to have a bayonet that's, you know, but it, for a little, I don't know, it's not very practical, but the concept, and I think I know where, where we're coming from with this. It's because Cloud in, in Final Fantasy VII, his, his buster sword is, is so iconic and it's so cool. And it was so kind of different that people were like, how in the world is he using this big sword? And they, they don't really explain it. It's just kind of, he's just really strong and can use big swords. And so is Sephiroth. He does the same thing. So uh, when they're making Final Fantasy VIII, I could see them being like, okay, the, the Buster Sword was iconic. What's another cool thing that we can do to make another iconic weapon that people haven't really thought of very much before? And I think that's where the Gunblade came from. Um, and it is cool, theoretically. Um, you just can't think about it too much um, outside of the confines of the game, you know, what they give you. What did you yeah. think of the gunblade though? Okay, so this goes back to a stylistic thing, right? I talked about my feelings on the style of the dramatic kind of like over the top nature, a lot of style over substance that I feel happens in the opening cinematic. But this is actually 
kind of true of a lot of character design in 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 anime in JRPGs and in, in Final Fantasy series in particular. Mm-hmm. Squall's but or Squall's Gunblade is about as practical as Cloud's Buster Sword. But we forgive the Buster Sword because of how awesome it looks. We forgive right. Cloud's hair because it looks cool. We forgive cool. We forgive the fact that his like uniform has only one shoulder pad because <laughs> yeah. It kind of looks cool. Yeah. Some people yeah. will forgive uh, Nomura's obsession with belts and zippers because it looks cool. There is to some extent a level of, it might seem hip- hypocritical coming from me to say that I can find some of these designs to be cool despite the fact that it is style over substance in a way. But I guess right. when it comes to the storytelling, when it comes to um, the method, the, the execution on, on how a story is presented, um, I have a certain leaning or a certain preference toward it being, uh, to, to it being filled with substance and subtext and having meaning behind why it's being done, more so than I do on mm-hmm. character design and weapon designs and things like that. Those are things that for me... Yeah. I send I seem to be okay with them just being cool for cool sake. Right. Zell um, and Tifa just fighting with their fists. I I I do understand the the history of Final Fantasy and how you've got the fighter who's a fighter and that's just monks, kind of how it is. Yeah, but, monk class. but it doesn't make sense. So something that bothers me more than Squall's Gunblade <laughs> is the fact that Zell is just like, I don't need a weapon at all. And he's not the strongest character. So it's like, well, you do need a weapon, dude. <laughs> Pick up a weapon. You'd be way better. In, in, a, um, in a world where people are using machine guns. Are. Yes. <laughs> the, the, enemy, the enemies that you're fighting, they are shooting at you with machine guns and Zell is punching and you in like, the face. <laughs> These are things that you just look past <laughs> in Final yes, Fantasy 7 and 8. It's part of yeah. the style and you just kind of be like, okay, this is the world. I accept it. And Gunblade falls into that category for me, where it's like I agree. It's cool. Now, something that's interesting about the Gunblade Two is that it doesn't actually shoot bullets. Um, really? So, so when you're pulling the trigger and and, and initiating that critical hit, if you do it with the right timing. Yeah. By the way, I love yeah. that. I love that. Uh, me too. The time hit thing is awesome. Yeah. Since Mario RPG, I've loved that. Anytime yep. that they have yep. button hitting timing in the battles, I am all, all about that. I really like that. Yeah. I especially like it going the other way too with defense. If you can defend with the right yes, timing, defense, you can block yeah. a little more. But anyway, you something, some control. Yeah, I like. I love that. So I love the concept. But he's not actually firing a bullet. What he's doing is it, it like gives the gun a little or the blade a little bit more momentum as he's swinging it. So he pu- he he pulls the trigger oh, and and really? the gun like vibrates extra hard <laughs> with extra force and just yink and does a little bit of extra damage. Which huh. is so funny because if you look at some of the the key art and stuff from like um like the prelude with the 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 opening credits sequence there are actually shells inside of the gunblade case. <laughs> yeah. But like He's not actually firing any bullets out of that thing. It's just you pull like it and blank. he just he pulls huh. it and it just does a little bit of an extra oomph to the to the swing of the attack. Okay, so, I I 
Didn't know that. Interesting. And apparently there are only two students in the entire garden who have been trained to use this weapon, right? It's it's like right. extra difficult to master. So only Cypher mm. and Squall have yeah. actually been taught and have mastered the gun blade as a weapon, a primary weapon that they use. So it's totally a style over substance thing. Um, mm. I'm fine with it. It's a little bit silly, but I like how it functions from a utilitarian standpoint in the battles. I like pulling that trigger, the R1 button to get a, get a critical attack. So I'm fine with it. Um, we're going to talk about this a little bit later for sure. And this is going to be a whole longer discussion on the localization process for final fantasy eight. But the first use of the word, whatever for squall happens Mm. in the fire cave as uh, Kistis is uh, teasing him. Um, he's yeah. just kind of like, whatever, you know, this, this, this becomes like a, a catchphrase for Squall throughout the game. He's always saying, whatever, whatever. It's a meme at this point. And uh, keep this in mind. This is not really what he's saying in Japanese. In Japanese, he does not say whatever. Uh, I think the technical translation of that would be, I'm sorry, but used in a very different context in Japanese. So we will talk about that later and the accuracy of the translation versus liberties of localization in a future episode. Mm. But I just want people to know we are going to touch on that later, the whatever aspect to Cloud's character. Um, What do you think about the junction system generally? How do you you like it as, as as a character progression sort of like system for the game? In comparison yeah, to others, I like material. I hated it at first um, when I first played the game because it, it did seem a little overly complicated. I didn't do the tutorial, whatever, but um, I I didn't like it at first. Um, it took me a while to, to understand really how everything worked. Um, but, you know, playing it the second time, I can utilize it, you know, immediately, very super effectively. So I actually don't mind it, especially, and they often will say this because your party changes and they remind you, they say, Oh, remember you get your GFs equipped. Right. And at some point in the game, they stop reminding you of that. Um, Mm. But um, your, the party changes several times, um, even in the, just the doll mission alone. And you, um, you have to go back in and re-equip all of your GFs to make sure you have everything right. But I actually didn't mind it the second time playing um, because, well, I didn't make the mistakes I did the first time. First of all, um, I understand how to how the game works a little bit better. But also, more importantly, um, the it gives you time to think about strategy before the battle. Right? You, your your characters have changed. You're not just going to go in and just hit X X X X X over and over and just. Yeah. It just attack, 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 or use magic or whatever it is. You're not just going to run in there how you sometimes might do it just typically in, in another JRPG. Um, you have to take some time ahead of time before you do that uh, to strategize exactly what you're going to do, which character is going to have which, um, you know, GF attached to them, which abilities you're going to try and level up. It, it I, I appreciated the kind of forethought that it kind of forces you to kind of go ahead and, and re-strategize depending on who's in your party. And you only have to do that once, um, you know, as you go throughout the rest of the, of the battle, unless you want to go to a different ability for your GF or something. But um, yeah, I actually really liked it the second time. Yeah. I, I think that the junction system is it provides plenty of satisfying strategy 
and and yeah. uh, enough complexity to be very very interesting as a system. I really like the junctioning system. What mm. I don't like is that it was it was paired with a level scaling system. So in this yes, game, yes, and so it can be taken advantage of. That mm-hmm. is that is unfortunate. In this game, yeah. the enemies in all over the world will always be at an appropriate level because they scale with the party, right? I think yeah. specifically they scale with Squall's level. So, but here's the thing about it is, is this actually forces you into junctioning a bit because you cannot just like grind up your levels in this yeah, game, yeah, that's true. right? There's no point to doing that. Not yeah. only will they be leveling up with you, but the, the enemies in the game actually, um, their stats improve faster through leveling up then the parties the character stats upgrade mm. through leveling up what really? what they want you to be doing is taking advantage of junctioning spells to the stats so taking the um the fire or whatever spell and junctioning that to your strength stat right they yeah. want you to improve your stats through junctioning and so if you try to just brute force and just level up the the enemies will actually slowly but surely become much stronger than you on base stats alone through leveling up. Now, I get the idea. I get why they did that. They wanted to kind of like push you into, you know, using the junctioning system effectively. Yeah. And they wanted to avoid level grinding. Right. But but the, you end up, um, what would be another word for it? You end up draw grinding. <laughs> You end up fighting enemies just so that you can take their stuff and it takes a while anyways. You, you, you still can't avoid grinding all that much. Yeah, well, so there's two different ways that you can obtain spells. And this is important for anyone who's playing this game for the first time and they, they find drawing boring. Two things. If you're playing this on a new version of the game, whether that's the Nintendo Switch or PlayStation 4 or PC version, they have a three-time speed option, the godsend of all RPGs. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, because now you can draw like 100 spells in like two minutes versus doing it in like 10 minutes or something, right? Yeah. So the, the if, if you choose to draw grind, it can be done a lot quicker. So that's one aspect of it. But if you don't want to grind at all, you find it stupid and boring you can do card refining and we will get into this a lot more in the next episode because you, you I think the siren um, GF mm. that you steal, that you draw from the boss at the end of the Dalit mission, uh, yeah. has the ability where you can take cards and refine them into magic spells. Nice. So when you get that ability you can, if you're playing the card game, which I really like, and we'll talk about this at the end of the episode, that's where we'll leave off. Um, you can get all kinds of magic spells from cards and you can junction them into really powerful spells that you then junction to your stats and you can become really, really, really powerful really early on. But, and you can kind of avoid fighting battles. They, they have an, uh, uh, an encounter none ability in this game where the encounter is going to get turned off. But also, there's the ability to just turn them off in the new versions of the game, like the remastered re-release. Right. Uh, right. So you can turn the battles off and not fight random battles, but just card refine really powerful spells and junction them, and all of a sudden you have end game level stats and you're level 7. <laughs> or something <laughs> like that, right? So, wow. it when you know what you're doing, it can be very easy to break the game. That being said, it is a very complex game. 
and not a lot of people on their first playthrough are going to figure that out by themselves. So to be fair to the game, not a lot of people are just going to like figure out how to break the game like that. But right, but word once the internet that. comes around and word travels fast. Yeah, I mean, I even knew about breaking this game before I played it. Right. Um. But that being said, I really like the idea of junctioning. I like the complexity. I, I like that you can put spells onto your sword, like your weapon, to give you like yeah. fire elemental to your sword yeah, or, or cool. fire defense to your armor. I really, really like the, the, the junctioning system. It's just the level scaling thing that I think if they had removed the level scaling idea, it would have been a lot better. Um, I think so, too. It would have yeah. been less easy to break the game, I should say. And I really love how the skills are learned, right? It's actually not that dissimilar from like the equipment of Final Fantasy IX, where if you have equipment on, you get ability points that go into unlocking abilities while you're wearing that equipment. And then you can pass that equipment to another character and they'll learn that ability and you'd get a different piece right. of equipment. So the GFs all have like a, a set of abilities they can learn. And if that, if that GF is equipped to you and you get ability points in the battle, they will go, the points will tally up into learning different abilities with the GFs. So... It's a very similar concept to what you'll see in Final Fantasy IX after this. It's a similar concept to what's in Lost Odyssey. I really like it. I think it's a really good way of learning abilities. It's, it's a lot of fun to do. Um, that's the one, the one good argument, actually, against not running away from battles all the time is that uh, you don't learn a lot of abilities if you don't fight. Right, if you don't, that's true. You actually, so yeah. if you want to learn the GF abilities, you got to at least do enough combat to learn them. So. Yeah. Um, okay, and then the last thing I want to talk about for systems now is just the weapon upgrading. I don't know how much of the weapon upgrading that you've done in the past. You don't go buy weapons at shops like you typically yeah. do in Final Fantasy games and in RPGs. New town, here's a new shop with all the new armor and the new spells and the new weapons. Um, and everything you get is totally different, yeah. Yeah, you, you upgrade one weapon for each character all throughout the game. And you, you do this by collecting parts and then taking those parts to the shop and then they'll use the parts and some money to upgrade your weapon. Um, the, it's, it's fine in concept, but the problem is, is that you don't get like that much of a strength upgrade between Squall's first version of his gun blade to the last one. Um, it's like a strength increase of 20 or something kind of insignificant like that. Like yeah. you get a lot more benefit in terms of damage just through junctioning spells correctly. Um, yeah. So, Eh, it's fine, but like you really don't even have to mess with it at all, and you can become really powerful without ever bothering with it. Um. Okay, and then I just uh, the last couple notes I made. Uh, that Squall has brought up this girl that he saw in the infirmary. Right? You kind of yeah. mentioned it that that girl who kind of came. I and said, didn't oh, we notice that when I first played the game. I had yeah. completely forgotten. Them. Yeah. So she she walks up right at the beginning. She says, "So we meet again, Squall." And then he kind of mentions her a couple times. He says, hey, to Kistis, like, who was that girl that yeah, was over was here? And she's like, I don't know who you're talking about. And then later on, he thinks of her again. So this girl that he saw in the infirmary, very important character and a nice plant, a nice mystery, I think, uh, a, a, a kind of a hook into the story. So remember that for uh, later episodes. Um, I also wrote down that the animation quality is a huge step up from FF7 in the FMB cutscenes in this game. With that dish... When it opens up and it just like unfolds and like yeah, it's cool. such a complex animation and it's so amazing. It looks super cool. You know what's funny though? You don't really see dishes anymore. 
Nope. <laughs> so in terms of like high tech, I'm like, that actually looks kind of 90s. <laughs> it does. It does. It's kind of the same way in FF7 too, like the CRT uh, displays that they're all using. Yes. Um, yeah. Square televisions everywhere. That's actually true. If you go into mm-hmm. Zell's house, they have some, uh, some like, I don't know, some kind of technical equipment like on a desk and it's using all these analog um, cables yeah. and stuff. And it's just like, oh man, that coaxial cable going in <laughs> It hasn't even been thing. that long either. It's, but it's, it's like, crazy. Dude, that's all just not, that looks so old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Last thing I wanted to talk about before wrapping up is the card game. Um, how much uh, have you jumped into the card game on this playthrough or previous playthroughs? What do you feel about I, the card I, game? Previous playthroughs, I had, I had played it. It takes a while to figure out exactly, you know, how it works. But um, I did, I did. I played uh, the guy over by the gates when you come in after you uh, fight the the first thing, like right as you enter Ballon Garden, there's the guy on the left. So it totally looks like Japan, by the way. That's how train stations are mm. in Japan. You got all the arrows or all the lanes that you can go through. You scan your tickets to get in. And then there's the, there's a booth on the side that there's a person manning it. Um, but yeah. And you know, it's, I mean, it's cool. I actually, this is funny and might be a little controversial. I do prefer Final Fantasy IX's card system. I don't know why. Really? I was I was better at it. It made a little more sense to me with the arrows and with the directions that the cards mm. can attack and different, um, you know, different other cards, I guess. Uh, but the Final Fantasy VIII one, I kind of avoided that this time. I think I only did it once or twice. Okay. Um. So... As is always the case with Final Fantasy minigames, there's got to be some element to it that they just make such a pain in the ass to deal with <laughs> that it just makes the whole thing almost like not worth doing. At least it feels that way. And so yeah. while, while I really love the card game itself, the simplicity of the game, mm. the rule system, the way that the rule system works is like in every region of the game, they'll have a different set of rules. Yes, but, yes, that is that is a problem. And so like understanding the different rules or, or one thing you can do is get a new set of rules to be passed throughout the region. And that right. takes yes. talking yeah. to the queen of cards it takes time. and then yep, going yep. and talking to another person and just hoping that the RNG will just pass the rules that you want <laughs> in that region. Maybe that's why I like <laughs> Final Fantasy IX's better is because the rules don't change. Once you figure it out, you you don't have to worry about anything. I agree with that. That's the They almost flipped their problems, in my opinion. I think <laughs> yeah. playing the game itself is... I, I like triple triad in Final Fantasy VIII a lot more mm. because cause there's some random rules um, where it's just a random thing where sometimes you'll put down the card that should win, yeah. but you'll just lose because RNG like just decided game, yeah. so. And it's just a, an element of randomness in the game that they yeah. decided to put in there. I really dislike that. And I dislike yeah. the the added complexities that they that they've put into it. I feel like the simplicity of Triple Triad I enjoyed more. However, at least the rules don't change from game to game. <laughs> and uh and trying to get the rules, the rules that you want passed can be such a chore in Final Fantasy of resetting, talking to the Queen of Cards, going and talking to the guy. Okay, they passed the wrong rules. Reset. Go talk to the Now, I think that you can pay money 
to have her pass the rule set that you want. Oh, really? But it's like it's like thirty or forty or sixty thousand gil or something like that. So it's very expensive. You cannot do it at this point in the game, but later on, I think it's an option. But one thing that you will miss out on, and I'm going to say this to you if you were thinking of not playing Triple Triad, um, there's a lot of good cards that can be refined into amazing spells for junctioning that you will miss out on if you don't play the card game. And specifically, um, there's some great cards you can win in Balam Village from Zell's Mom. So if you if you go and you play against Zell's Mom and you have the right rules sets, you can win some yeah. really good cards from her right at the start that will be mm-hmm. super helpful to you in against the students at the garden or against people in other towns later on. Um, so if you, that's if you're, good to know. <laughs> if you're not going to play it, that's fine too. Um, it, it actually might be better balance wise in terms of the game's difficulty if you just don't bother with it. But if you do want to play the card game and you don't want to be frustrated by having terrible cards, <laughs> um, you can win some really good ones from Zell's mom in Balam Garden. So, um, I'll just throw that out there. Okay. Uh, that's going to bring us to the end of today's discussion. All right, and then lastly, I just wanted to let everybody know where we'll be playing up to um, for the next episode. So we're going to actually get through quite a big portion of the game. Uh, we just we stopped right before getting back to Balam Garden and going through um, the award, not the award, the the graduation ceremony and the ballroom scene and all that. So we didn't, we have not seen all that yet. That's the next part. So we're going to go back to Balam Garden and play all the way to the end of disc one. So quite a big portion of the game to get through, but I do want to get through games faster. And so I'm turning this into somewhere between a five or six episode series instead of the 12 episodes that I had originally planned on. So um, we're going to be covering a larger portion of the game. So get through the end of disc one and then stop there and then that's where we'll pick up for the next uh, episode. So, just to let you know, that's where where we'll be playing for next time. I'm actually I'm having a good time. I, I re- like I said, I really enjoy Final Fantasy VIII, despite the fact that yeah. there I, are some there are some stylistic things that that don't resonate mm-hmm. with me. But th- but knowing that ahead of time and knowing the purpose behind why they're doing it and seeing it kind of from the the creator's perspective. There's a lot to appreciate about the game. There's a lot of there's a lot of good ideas here, and uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to kind of break those down in detail as we go on. So, thank yeah, you for I joining agree. us. I'm, I'm enjoying it even more the second time. So, yeah, thank you for joining us. We appreciate everybody who's watching. Uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, links are in the description. We do a second podcast uh, every month, uh, Patreon exclusive. We'll be recording that here in a couple days. And that'll be uh, going up as well. So, um, yeah, we just we appreciate everybody for for your comments, for sharing your for sharing your thoughts with us. We learn a lot from you, just as uh, hopefully you you learn something from us too. So, until next time, have a great Thanksgiving and holiday season, and we'll be back again in December. Peace out. <laughs>